road is gonna cut. Hey, town, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going all the way in the Welcome, welcome. This is Dan Platt with What's Left in Albany. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region, featuring discussions with the underliners of community projects or organizations to discuss themselves and what they're doing. I also discuss, though that's what I'll be discussing um, in the remainder of this program, Local news and issues in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, opposing our neoliberal present and potential fascist futures, while promoting the build-out of a commons economy and delegative democracy, waging a clandestine insurgency against confusion and ignorance, as we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for this city, we are going to find whatever's left. So today I have, I'll just start with a blatant announcement that this will be the last few episodes of the show and my time here at WCAA. But otherwise, I'm going to start, go off strong with basically going through the last bank of stories that I've collected, um, anything of interest that I found while skimming the Times Union or the Albany Business Review. And I'm going to start with sort of a wrap-up, but it's also uh, the gloves will be off now as I ran about nonprofit industrial complex as a thing in Albany and all northwest cities, all northeast cities. But, you know, just, just speaking generally as well, with the story about the South End Grocery. Uh, last episode where I was talking uh, and covering articles, I kind of covered its closure and particularly the beginning of or the restarting of the African-American Cultural Center as the Black Art Center. But as soon as I read that out, the Times Union published via the reporting of Steve Hughes uh, a full report on uh, the background to what happened, or at least the best that could be ascertained about what happened about the South End Grocery with the title, Questions Multiply After Collapse of South End Grocery Cult and the Cultural Center. Uh, this was written at the end of November. Founder hopes the store will reopen despite mounting debts. A key donor wants clarity on accounting and expenses. So there's still a ray of, sun a ray of hope, but let's keep a realist hats on. So in the name Trayvon Jackson... The man had a vision for the intersection of South Pearl Street and Madison. On the southwest side, he worked to add vibrancy to the African-American Cultural Center of the Capital Region and make it a place to celebrate the city's black community. 
On the northeast corner, Jackson, in December of 2022, achieved the long-sought dream of opening a grocery store to serve South End residents. But within nine months of the South End grocery opening, both initiatives shut down. And one of Jackson's biggest donors has unanswered questions about how tens of thousands of dollars were spent. Jackson, age 30, so that's a surprise from number one for me, I'm 35, it always pains me to see people younger than me doing more than me or in positions of higher authority or responsibility. Uh, but that's sort of a mixture of being in the right place at the right time, having the right connections, all of those various forms of uh, means, access to economic opportunity that are traditional versus the modern uh, uh, format of uh, access to economic opportunity via education credentials you know and in a true meritocracy it seems the most fair form of meritocracy could be level of education assuming we fight for universal access to education otherwise you're left to your own devices family ties uh religion so it's like oh join a church so you'll get social connections all the all, all the traditional forms which what would morality, sex, uh, ethnicity, all these things that lead to tribalism and in other types of hierarchies. Yet to find a kind of good blueprint from an anarchist perspective of what like a true fair way of distributing economic opportunity. But I suppose as a socialist, it's like, well, it's not, it's not about equal opportunity. It is about equal outcome. It is about an equal economic floor. Provide that and people do not have to fight uh, for the scarce economic opportunities. So, but his story is sort of, uh, Javon, you know, Mr. Jackson's is sort of that story of like kind of getting a leg up and kind of being a success story. And he's still a successful man, but his mistakes affect a lot more than just his personal finances. So he blamed the, he says, he is renegotiating the shuttered grocery store's financing and rejects any suggestion that he use grant funding in, improperly. He blamed the closure of the cultural center on friction with its board. So the story is all this time. His development consulting nonprofit, Blue Light Development Group, was the center's largest supporter. But where did the Blue Light Development Group come from? Now, he said the board was unable to hack it on their own without our guiding hand, which gives paints a picture that and this is something I, I seem to notice a lot in these nonprofit boards that there's a lot of armchair activism happening you have people who maybe they have a little bit of money on hand they're middle class they put up the original funds for a community project so they're on the board and that's how you usually get a board spot or you're on the board of trustees and you don't really know how to run things or do a community project, so you rely on hiring someone or recruiting someone who does or says they do know how to run things, or, and you become dependent on them. So there's really a lack of accountability or democracy especially. None of it's really democratic. It's just whoever shows up. So tyranny of the active, it's called. And how can you keep someone accountable if you don't know how things are working or supposed to work? How do you know if they're doing things properly? That's a question that that's what came to my mind uh, reading this. 
So the story of the collapse of the two nonprofit organizations involves the complicated relationships among Jackson, the Cultural Center's board, a group of local philanthropists, and the regional financial institutions brought together to support the launch of the independent grocery store. Months after the store's failure, much is unknown, including when or whether it will reopen. That's the last question on my mind, though. I really, like, so much of this is opaque. How can anyone learn a proper lesson about what not to do and how to do things if everyone's really just covering their, looking to save face or cover their butt in case of investigation because maybe they were actually breaking the law or something or cutting corners because, hey, really, if you're going to make it in this capitalistic world, you pretty much have to be some kind of lawbreaker or criminal. Even the legal and clean corporate execs started as some type of criminal or like, you know, the, the great robber baron families, they started bank robin. Kennedy started as bootleggers. The, uh, well, you have the, you know, the new family, new, nouveau rich of Albany. They, they they were the, the crack dealers of, of the last generation. So a number of financial problems will likely complicate any effort to bring back or repurpose the store at 106 South Pearl Street, which closed in August after its lenders sent a default notice, as I covered previously. Albany County Executive Dan McCoy, who championed the project, once called the store, quote, a great example of how the public and private sectors can come together to overcome big challenges. It was hailed as a major step toward equity in a neighborhood that had suffered Decades of government neglect and private disinvestment, established with the goal of providing fresh, healthy food to residents. Amazing. I don't think anything in that paragraph was true. I say that in jest, though. McCoy and other county officials declined to comment for this article, citing potential litigation. On to the Tui grants. Charles Tui, a longtime developer of affordable housing and director of the Tui Foundation, said his organization donated more than uh, 111000 to the Cultural Center in 2021. He now says those funds can't be properly accounted for in the center's bank records. I don't know how that happens, but... Uh, so a little background. Uh, the Tui family were the owners of car dealerships. That was where the family money came from. Tui, being kind of a boomer a hippie type, uses the family fortune that was gained through selling cars to uh, to do various community-funded projects and is married to Alice Green uh, of the Center for Law and Justice and also a Green Party candidate for mayor at one point. Tui is married to Alice Green, one of the original founders of the decade-old Cultural Center. Now, that was surprise number two. The Cultural Center is only a decade old? I started getting involved with activism in Albany, speaking of myself, uh, in 2012. And so I would encounter these organizations, whether it be the community center for you know the, this art center, Grand Street, or a number of things, and I, I'm kind of uh, they gave me the impression, and maybe this is the whole fake it till you make it, that they were older and more established. But I was just kind of a latecomer, or I showed up and and I didn't realize that these only started like a year prior to me showing up or, or me finding out that they exist. But it's not like anyone like has the whole we just started or only a few organizations will like have a fifth anniversary. The well-known Albany-based, so this is the Center for Law and Justice, 
Al Screen is the director of the well-known Albany-based Social Justice Org. The company, along with other community members, are in the process of setting up a successor organization to the defunct one, which will be called the Alice Moore Black Arts and Cultural Center. Tui was among several philanthropists and foundations who provided funding so Jackson and the Cultural Center could buy the former South Pearl Street McDonald's from the Albany Housing Authority and convert it into a grocery store. Tui said he decided to come forward with his concerns after repeatedly seeking a full explanation of what happened to the foundation's donations. The philanthropist added that he wanted the community to have a full understanding of what happened to the center and the store. I agree with him. It's the least we deserve. Two years ago, Tui suggested that the cultural center should apply for a grant from his foundation to fix up its building at 135 South Pearl Street because the top floor is still kind of a husk, uh, but it's a big open space. Great. It could be great for banquets. It could be used as a big uh, hall space. Music shows even, maybe. Uh, so the $21,000 in funding was intended to pay for roof repairs and exterior paint job. The foundation agreed to provide an additional fifty grand to help cover the costs of the property purchase for the grocery store site. And this included a mural with, if the art center goes forward, in the last article I read, they plan to build on the lot next door housing, which will cover the mural. I remember it being controversial, mostly because it's sort of the style of like taking pictures and art from other people and just projecting it on the side of the building and painting that. And I remember it's uh, at least it's controversial to my brother. It's a uh, it includes a picture of uh, a portrait of Malcolm X. I like Malcolm X, but my brother thought uh, like he and many other people who have been fed a little bit of propaganda thought he was anti-Semitic or something. It's like, yeah, well, there's Farrakhan. Maybe you're confusing him with him uh, or just Nation of Islam in general. But the Nation of Islam helped kill him. So, yeah. I think there needed to be a little more interesting iconography. So the combined uh, 111000 appeared in the Cultural Center's bank account September 23rd, 2021, three months before it bought the former McDonald's. Bank records show that before the infusion, the center's account held a balance of just $0.92. Cents. According to bank records provided to the Times Union, the you know 111000 was largely gone from the Cultural Center's accounts by the end of November 2021 a full month before Jackson bought the former McDonald's for the price tag of $850,000, which is really steep, especially when you're just to a nonprofit and the city has given assets before to nonprofits like the palace. Though I suppose in that case, they were giving it to the people who were already running it. So maybe that was the justification. Well, and they, you know, the art center wasn't running anything out of it, out of the McDonald's. The plan was to run something out of it. If only that was a city enterprise or uh, a city business. So from late September until the end of the year, the cultural center spent or transferred more than 133000 from its main account. In the same span, the center also received ten grand from the Times Union. Well, sorry, from the publisher of the Times Union, CEO, George Hurst III, and a $14,000 loan from the Community Improvement Loan Fund, a program from the national development nonprofit Grow America, 
meant to support women and people of color, as well as businesses in low to moderate income neighborhoods. More than half of that, 133 grand, went to Jackson's nonprofit development consulting firm, Blue Light Development, including more than 50 grand in October. Nearly all of the transfers to Blue Light are in amounts between 3,500 and 7,500. Jackson said he transferred the money to Blue Light because he did not trust the cultural center's board to manage its own finances. I mean, they did start with 92 cents when we got there, I guess. But that, that, that does, there's already a conflict there, right? The tension between him and the board, they don't trust each other. But is he the treasurer? No. Did he ask for permission? Uh, probably not. Jackson said that some of the expenses that Tui raised questions about, such as a 1600 to National Grid, were costs to make sure the center could obtain the title to the former McDonald's free and clear. So he spent money on doing that, but he didn't spend money on wait for it. Blue Light held the money. So I, I, I'm setting my I'm setting up the narrative here. You know, Jackson is is so good with money, but he makes a lot of mistakes through this narrative uh, for what happened. And I went over some of it yesterday with the reporting available back in the summertime that he was taking out loans for a community grocery store that was not going to make any profit, maybe never even be in the black, but regardless, wasn't going to be in his first six months to a year, but he already had loan payments to make, and, well, it's it's coming. It's, it's, it's quite a doozy. So Blue Light held the money. The donations were made in the cultural uh, – that were made in the cultural center in accounts for the benefit of the cultural center because the cultural center's board were not managed well or trusted to receive their own funds, Jackson said. He did not offer a specific reason why the Tui Foundation's 50 grand grant for the grocery store wasn't moved over in a single transaction. You know, usually if you're moving money in little increments, it's, it's kind of it's kind of shady, kind of sus. Um, now, it's not any particular reason, he says. It's just installments rather than in bulk, Jackson said. That's literally just how it was processed. It was just accounting. There is also a uh, about five grand transfer from the Cultural Center's account to a Cash App account belonging to Jackson's wife, named Jayona. Jackson said the money was reimbursement for services his wife provided at the Cultural Center. Let's hope there's a timesheet that she filled out for that. But I'm not counting on it, but I'm, I'm projecting. The center's board does not have an explanation for three written checks totaling $11,000, though. Jackson said he provided the board of documentation for that spending. So it was a little bit of he said, they said. It is not clear how closely the cultural center's board tracked its finances. Its former treasurer, Larry Maldlin, did not return calls for comment. Because it's always a former treasurer, never a current one. According to copies of checks provided to the Times Union, only 35 grand about could be traced to roofing repairs and a painting contractor for the cultural center. The building's paint job was never completed, and Tui said the painting contractor was paid 20 grand of what was supposed to be a 46 grand job, leaving 26 grand from the repair grant unaccounted for. Jackson said the contractor, Albany Artisans, which was then also contracted for the for the grocery store, was paid in full in that he would provide documentation of that payment to the Times Union, but did not. Christopher Hacker, the owner of Albany Artisans, did not return calls for comment. 
about a little code for those ever reading newspaper articles. When the phrase did not return calls for comment is made, keep in mind that these stories, the reporting is done in the span of like two days. So if you ever tried to get a hold of somebody in cold calling fashion, uh, usually reaching them, getting a hold of somebody, usually takes more than two days. So it just means I called them, left a message, they didn't get back to me in time for my deadline. It really helps. Uh, good journalism is like the reporting should take like a week or so, or it's an active report. You know, the reporting process is active so long as it takes to get comments from everyone involved. But because reporting journalists in the profession don't get that time, you never have a complete story. I don't think ever. I've never read, like, you know, it's, there's always a, you always hear, didn't return calls for comment, didn't return our calls. Now, if they do have, if it is their job, then maybe they should return calls, you know? Especially if it's a corporation and it's a PR department, like, what else do they have to do? Sometimes you can read into, they're not talking. Other times it's like, voicemails full. The $111,000 grant in grants from Tui were not the end of his contribution to the grocery store and the cultural center that year. I mean, he's the main meta factor, right? So just days before finalizing the site purchase on December 17th, Jackson called Tui, Hearst, and Chet Opaka, another well-known philanthropist and a co-founder of Albany Molecular Research. Jackson made a desperate plea. He was 200 grand short of the 850 grand that he needed to close. Without a $666,000 check from each of them, you know, a third of 200 grand, the sale wouldn't happen, which is just that kind of like huckster, like, I need the money now. You got to pay now. Pay now, folks. This offer is only for a limited time. Put that money in right now. You're guaranteed, oh, this grocery store will be so great. We'll fill that food desert. Believe me, folks. It's the Ron Popeil promise. All three wrote checks to Blue Light Development Group, not the cultural center, the, the development group. Tui's check came from his personal account, not the foundation. So subtitle here, Blue Light Steps In. So now, now Trey, let's, we're going to talk Trayvon Jackson's background. A Troy native and an accomplished athlete at Troy High School, Jackson earned an academic scholarship to Morehouse College in Georgia, according to a 2011 article in the Troy Record. So I could search his name, found that. Jackson regularly represented to people that he became independently wealthy as an investment banker in Chicago. Wee, red flag. But turned to nonprofit work as a way of giving back. In an interview, or tax write-off, as is usually the case, I mean, it, read. I could read a summary of the nonprofit industrial complex. You know, it describes how you know like the Gates and all their foundations they make more money than they give. That should tell you something. Or the Clinton Foundation. I mean, it's it's all over the place. Lots of big names. You know, just recognizable stuff. But here's here's it's on the smaller scale here, but it's the same mechanisms at work. 
Let's see. So uh, in an interview earlier this month, uh, Opaka said he believed Jackson, quote, presumably made a fair amount of money when he was in Chicago. According to his LinkedIn page, a great source of information, news, and truth, uh, and uh, representations, honest representations of reality, and not a place where you can find uh, the uh, hostages of corporate America posting about how they, oh, they love their job. They're so they're having such a good time. According to his LinkedIn page, Jackson spent three summers as an analyst at BMO Capital Markets, the investment banking subsidiary of Canadian Bank of Montreal. After graduating from Morehouse in May 2015, he began working as an underwriter for the New York Business Development Corp. That fall, and founded Blue Light Development Group in August 2016. Now, was it? was a nonprofit then. Jackson joined the Cultural Center's board in 2017, two years later, and quickly became its executive director. Quickly, you know. So, well, I mean, it's like, who else is there, right? Was he replacing someone? Was it, was it vacant? A lot of these organizations seem to have a lot of churn. And that's either because people aren't paid well enough for them to stay, uh, or they're not paid to recruit the right people, or it's just never, or the board's, are not good uh, custodians and managers, and usually someone who comes in who knows what they're doing gets frustrated with the people who don't know what they're doing. And But unfortunately, maybe such relationship could be beneficial where you teach people how to do accounting instead of just taking it off their hands and saying, you're not responsible with this money. I'm from the Wall Street, uh, well, the Chicago uh, stock exchange uh, scene. I know how to manage money. You can trust me with it. A better giving back moment would be teaching others how to do it, especially when you want to open a center to teach people those skills. Maybe you could start with the board of of your nonprofit. Now, some of these board members, there aren't. When I say they're armchair activists, it's like they they got their arms crossed and they don't want to learn more. They're okay with what they got, or they're too busy because they have real careers or something. It's a little different, but there's a pattern to notice too. Uh, in exchange of becoming executive director, the board allowed him to use its building at 135 South Pearl Street as Blue Light's base of operations. It's sort of mistake one. I mean, if it's a separate company, you should be charging them rent. Uh, that was actually something that happened here at Grand Street, where one executive director, part of the churn, it was temporary, you know, he was here for like two years, and he was running his business out of this building, but rent-free. He was meant to be paying rent. And didn't charge himself, so it's kind of a four hundred bells a week. But you know, no one else was using the building except for the basement, which he was renting out as a boxing ring. Not a lot, it was like a training boxing ring, not a, a fight club. So the cultural center's president, Linda Jackson Chalmers, said that it had struggled financially over the years, particularly coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. Jackson was the one who helped keep the lights and the operation going. Jackson Chalmers said. The two are not related. Oh, because they're named Jackson. When nonprofits are supposed to submit annual tax paperwork to the IRS and the state, Attorney General's Charities Bureau, the only tax return for the Cultural Center available on the state's website lists Jackson's 2019 compensation at uh, 28800 which is um, actually less than what I'm making right now. So, I mean, he was paid something, but it wasn't a lot. You know, he's not money-grubbing here. 
But in other years, he worked as a volunteer in a volunteer capacity, according to Jackson Chalmers and Jackson. This is usually a recipe for some kind of embezzlement because, hey, people need to pay rent. Now, of course, he was independently wealthy. He didn't need a big income, right? How much did he have in the bank himself? Maybe he has half a million he could just put in, but he didn't. Why don't they? Why don't they? They want to give back, don't they? But they want to give it back on their terms. That's the pattern. So it is not clear how Jackson supported himself during the time he was running Blue Light Development. The Cultural Center, and beginning in December 2022, the grocery store, Blue Light's uh, 990 forms, which is the primary tool the IRS uses to gather information from tax-exempt organizations, that includes unions too, actually. As treasurer, I was like it showing the process. I didn't actually get to it, but it was there. Um, but this, uh, the 990 does not show him drawing a salary for the years 2020 through 2022. But as the nonprofit's revenue rose, so did his expenses, including nearly 35000 for travel in 2021 and then 28000 for supplies. Those numbers, relatively, rose to more than 42000 and 60000 in 2022. On the 2022 filing, Jackson claimed he and his wife worked 70 hours a week for no salary. And that's always a problem, whether it's, you know, sus or not. Meaning, like, if that's true, it really sucks. If it isn't true, what's going on here? But, I mean, it, it means something is wrong if someone has to work 70 hours a week, no matter who they are. Laying that out. Jackson's arrival on the board had solved several problems. Well, that's convenient, but also dangerous. The Cultural Center had always struggled to fundraise and had no permanent staff to guide it. That's always a problem, too. But Jackson was a charismatic fundraiser with powerful backers. The most crucial was his relationship with the aforementioned Opaka, who met Jackson when he was a teenager through the Capital Region Sponsor a Scholar program. Opaka had continued to support Jackson financially and personally. But, of course, this is, if I may be a little Marxist here, like this is how cultural reproduction works. You know, you pick out, you pick up the someone out of the poor community, you polish them up, sponsor them, you give them the scholarships, you get them to work on uh, in a financial firm, and then they come back to the hood to clean it up and help you know solve the problems there. But they're using the very same tools and the toolbox and the thinking that made it the hood in the first place. To at a whole different level of money, uh, there's uh, well maybe I'm not. Maybe I shouldn't because I can't remember the name right. I'm really bad with those names, I guess. But but you have these rich, you know, I got b-ball players. You know, they they're millionaires and they want to get back to the hood. And what they buy a little free library or something, or or in one case it was like they started a coding program. It's like they they just won't pay for things really out of pocket. It has to be like the means of opportunity. It's like just provide an infrastructure. Damn it. But it's really something the state and the government should do. So it's like, save your money. Fund candidates for better government to fund these things. You know, the lack of government and private investment, right? It needs, doesn't need both. Maybe it just needs one. Okay, going out of my board now. I've given them a couple thousand dollars a month for a few years now just to support Blue Light, Opaka told the Times Union. Obaka said he had never questioned where the money was going and how it was being spent. 
You know, he didn't ask. Since returning to the capital region, Jackson immersed himself in county agencies and charitable foundations, building relationships that allowed him to tap into resources the center might not have otherwise had when it came time to raise funds for a grocery store. So here's where I like I get into my little theory um, based on my observations from nonprofits and in general, not just this one, but several others of it seems like these groups can never really do anything on their own. They can never build their own base of financing or resources. They have to find 30 to 50 partners, have other people help them do it or to do it for them. You collect all these partnerships and you basically still end up with no base of your own. Now, you can look at that as like the interdependence of community. I see something else, though. I see scores of people not knowing how to do anything and not being able to build their own economic base. We always have to extract it from somewhere else. In this case, we have to extract it from the people who extract value from us as workers. It's a big, I see a big Rube Goldberg machine. You know, all these little pieces knocking into each other. Marble goes into golf club. Golf club hits accordion. Accordion hits this. And at the end of a long line of objects hitting each other, the toaster is turned on. When really, you could get up and hit the toaster. So let's go into some of those partners. Albany County, the Capcom Credit Union, and Key Bank loaned the grocery project a total of half a million dollars. A number of foundations and nonprofits gave financial support or promised in-kind donations to make the store a reality. Now, I've read a few articles like these before where promises are made, and later on they'll say, oh, that was a verbal agreement. We didn't really promise anything. We didn't, and they didn't deliver. Get it in writing or it doesn't exist. And you have all these partnerships and they kind of become ethereal after a while. You, you get, you make all these connections at mixers or social events. You know, you, you have to spend 40 grand traveling around to where? Back to Georgia, going back to Georgia a bunch of times to the old alma mater. Keep it in Albany. Why didn't you go to school here? You know, why Georgia? Why this tech, you know, whatever it was. Uh, why not RPI? You know, why, okay. So the funding uh, Jackson pulled together from benefactors, nonprofits, private businesses, and Albany County allowed him to do something that had been discussed for years but never done. The creation of a grocery store aimed solely at providing fresh food to North South End residents. But it was not just fresh food. And it wasn't even that much fresh food. A lot of it was cooked food. It was really like a boondoggle and so there needs to be a lot more like um autopsy a swift closing after the site purchase in december 2021 the former mcdonald's need extensive renovations to transform it into from a boarded up fast food re restaurant which is very small for a fast food place by the way it's not your suburban latham size place this place is small and the fact that they didn't, like, I think some people like myself assumed they were going to hollow out the kitchen side. They didn't. They retained the kitchen. So it's really bodega-sized. So it's not a full-service grocery. It didn't have enough. And it didn't have that much fresh stuff. Some of the partners were local farmers or something. But that just means you only get one type of vegetable at a time. 
And so you can't really do all your grocery shopping or you have to go multiple times a week. Nobody can do that. No one wants to do that. It, it, was, it was inconvenience upon inconvenience. So if you're not really serving the community, and there's all these other models, you know, they were praising like, oh, this is the model that works. This is a great model. This is something McCoy was saying. This is something everybody involved had to say. But they weren't using the models that worked. This is actually the kind of model that doesn't work, where you find 50 different sources of funding and, and then you have to hop, cobble it all together. Why? Because of various injustices, like this, a city agency selling a property that is a vacant lot, pretty much. It's a, I mean, it's a building and a parking lot, but it's totally unused. They own it. 850 grand? Are you kidding me? I thought that was ridiculous when I read that, and I still think it's ridiculous. It's like, why put that much sink? Of course they have to like beg, beg their donors again and again, and then take out loans. How are you going to pay that back? Well, as read in previous articles, like he was going like pay off a credit card with another credit card, basically. And I'm not just mad at this failure. I'm mad at all the failures out there, a lifetime of failures. At the time, Jackson said the plan was to lease the site to an established grocer or bring in the food bank of northeastern New York to help run the business. I think that would have worked, all right, to make it more like a permanent food bank area. Because a lot of food banks in the area are out of, like, churches and other religious institutions. It would be nice to have a secular one. But uh, that aside, to have one that's in the South End, because all of them are, none of them are in the South End. You have the Mission, and you have this other church, and that's it. Or the, 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 the children's cafe. Nothing for adults. Nothing permanent. So that would have been nice, but apparently that didn't happen. That wasn't one of the partners he could gain from his charisma, I guess. So for the first year after the purchase, its mortgage was paid on time as the store slowly took shape. He was already paying. The mortgage had to be paid even before it was open. So it finally opened December 27th, 2022, drawing praise from city and county officials. Yes, clap, 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 ribbon cutting. Jackson hired staff. So it's like that could hire. They hired staff for that, but the cultural center can't, can't hire staff ever. And his wife worked as the general manager. Does she have grocer experience? They couldn't hire someone from the co-op or something? I, I actually thought the co-op was one of the partners, and some of the managers there were helping them get set up. I thought that was something that one of our producers here mentioned because he's a manager of the co-op. Maybe I could ask him his impressions. But. Uh, he's, he was often at the counter, cashing out customers' purchases. Jackson said neither he nor his wife ever took a paycheck from the store. He refused to sell tobacco, alcohol, or lottery tickets. So that's a kind of low bar. Items that are profit drivers at many, well, I'll say bodegas, but grocery stores. He cast it as a moral imperative to provide residents with healthy products, noting that there are plenty of other locations in the city that sold those wares, like across the street. In early 2022, uh, three, this year, the store began falling behind on its mortgage payments. It was making money. Who would expect it to? Jackson responded to lenders' entreaties by saying that any revenue would first go toward providing food for residents. He tried to convince the banks in Albany County to convert their loans into grants. That's where you made a mistake. <laughs> that's, that's a mistake. I'm not sure how he thought that would work. Uh, at one point, the nonprofit Business for Good spoke to Jackson and Jackson Chalmers, the cultural center president, 
about having the Saratoga Springs-based organization step in and assist, but were told the help wasn't needed. And that's the kind of attitude that I'm kind of speaking to where boards maybe don't want to learn good accounting. It's like, oh, we got it covered, but you're broke all the time. And you're only 10 years old, so it's not like you're you've, you're hitting hard times after a prestigious run. It seems like you've been broke the whole time. I don't even know how you bought that building you have. And it was in pretty good condition. You know, it used to be a bank. It's got the bank vault in it. And it's really nice. And it's two, and it's three floors. In this, and I've been on the second floor. I've, I've got a tour. Second floor is offices. You know, it's got it's good office wing. So in addition to a basic failure to generate sufficient revenue, other problems with the store, including a leaky roof and problematic plumbing, how is this not covered in the renovation? What the hell? This continued to sap its meager resources. The store shut down for six weeks over the summer after a fire extinguisher accidentally discharged. Still, still no word on how what caused that. Uh, it reopened in August, but a default notice from the three lenders went out at the end of the month. This was covered previously. The Jackson publicly insisted the store wasn't closing. He hoped to use a $1.5 million federal grant that Blue Light Development had applied for but had not yet received from U.S. Rep's Paul Tonko's office as a solution to the store's financial woes. Previous article mentioned that this grant was for a business education campus. So even before, while this one is struggling, he was already planning another big project, an even bigger project. And this is where it feels like a reverse pyramid scheme where you pay off one project's costs by starting another project that is even more expensive so you can take some of that uh, grant and pay off the first one with it. And so you have to keep getting bigger. I believe this is how capitalism works. So I can understand taking, like that's what I mean by taking the principles from Chicago Stock Exchange uh, sector and taking them to the nonprofit sector doesn't quite translate because like the whole, let's turn these loans into grants. Do you think Morgan Chase is going to like, is doing charity work that that's what any capitalist will tell you. I'm not doing this for charity work. That's for after I've retired and I want to give back to assuage my conscience for all the forests I cut down and slaves. I had to contract in Congo or something. Can you tell I'm an anti-capitalist? I'm not even getting to the part that really floored me. Tui said that rather than going through a traditional foreclosure, wait, maybe I'm... Jackson just never really was able to build a coalition and surround himself with the people that he needed to make things work. Even though he was like, he was like, I had 40 partners. Like it was was in a previous article. Like he assembled 50 partners to start the grocery store. And nobody was around to make it work? Amazing. And that's where it's like, it doesn't matter how many partners you make. Then actually, so it's like, it's pretending there's community, but there's also this projection of fake it till you make it. Pretend you're successful and you know what you're doing and don't, oh no, if we admit we need help, that will put the other grant in jeopardy, which depends on us looking good and successful. Then it hits the fan. So things were no better on the other side of Madison and South Pearl. 
the cultural center had lost its nonprofit status because Jackson and the board failed to file required tax paperwork with the IRS. I, I was floored by this. Like, how could you miss doing that? That's your one job as a nonprofit. Make sure you're a nonprofit. It had no money and was no longer putting on any programming. So you don't, you don't even have the art stuff. I mean, for, for years, it hasn't been doing art stuff. You know, you, you had the Juneteenth event, which was actually getting worse each year, mostly because they were ramping up the grocery store stuff. But, but that should be ramping up with it. You have, you, you, you have even more space because you bought a whole big lot to hold the event in. But they were still, like, putting it along the block and stuff. They didn't really need to do that anymore. So the last event the center hosted and promoted was a drag brunch in August. Jackson Chalmers declined to discuss why the cultural center had not filed its IRS paperwork. So in this case, they didn't get to return the call. They declined to discuss it. Just say you messed up. You got to own up. Otherwise, you can't start anything else. You know, and and no one will trust you to, I suppose. In September, the cultural center's board voted to dissolve the organization despite Jackson's opposition. Why did he still think they wanted it around? Like, well, this is his cover, I guess. So Jackson, I'm reading in, you know, I'm being pessimistic here, but I'm going to put the cynical hat on for the rest of this. Because um, I, I, think, I, think I think it's necessary to, like, really shame, put the shame in, in this way of doing things, not just the, these particular people. Because I see it over and over. I see it again and again and again. I've been flipping between organizations in Albany for a decade. All right, and it's this is not a unique problem. Some orgs have staying power because they're providing real services, and I, I suppose it's for the more community projects that are more like stochastic in their action and development, where that, that I'm talking about. Uh, Jackson blamed the board for the center's collapse, saying they feared the consequences of the grocery store's mortgage debt and left him holding the bag. Several former board members did not return calls for comment. And this goes up to the highest levels of Albany government, by the way. Council president, he did this uh, when he first ran for mayor. He, he left uh, his campaign manager holding the bag. He, got, he took out a lease for his campaign office, and he skipped town and didn't pay the rest. Because none of the money was gone. The campaign's over. Sometimes you, you finish paying for the campaign once you've won office. Because then you have a lot of new moneyed friends to go to. Jackson blamed the okay blame this yeah you know, blame blame blame. Uh, it's not clear what may happen next to the grocery store property. Tui said that rather than going through the traditional foreclosure, the most likely scenario involves the lenders and the cultural center agreeing to transfer the deed in exchange for erasing the mortgage debt. But which bank is it going to? Is it going to Capcom, Broadview? Is it going to KeyBank? Maybe the county will get it, and then it can go on the uh, the in the land bank. It is not clear to whom the deed would be transferred. Several factors could complicate the property's future ownership. The first is that the Cultural Center's board in Jackson did not secure. And, and so here's the so first they lost nonprofit status with the IRS. But here's another expense they they had but didn't need to have. The Cultural Center's board and Jackson did not secure a property tax exemption for the grocery store. According to Albany County tax records, there is already. 36 grand in property taxes and interest due. And at least one former contractor has filed a lien on the property. 
Jackson asserts that he maintains control of the property and is in discussions with lenders about reopening. It's all just business conversation, he said. Can't reveal details. But in keeping with what I said previously, we're going to fully satisfy the mortgages, and we're just working out a way to do that. Regardless of the site's future, Tui and Opaka said they still want to see a grocery store in the South End, whether at the Pearl Street location or elsewhere. Albany County recently put out a request for development firms to offer ideas on how they might redevelop the county office complex a few blocks south on South Pearl Street. This is the D, uh, former DMV there, which is also where the Board of Elections is housed. The site has long been suggested as the potential home for a grocery store. I mean, it's also a big parking lot. So it's perfect for infill. Just a bunch of county workers commuting into the South End uh, and, and taking up that real estate. Okay, we're, at, we're, we're, we're about at the end here. I'm hoping that after the dust settles, we can get a group together, group, and someone to turn to actually take a leadership position who knows how to run that business and then turn it into the silk purse it should be, Opaka said. So that's the end of it. And having known that that's some type of idiom, I looked up the source of it. It's you can't turn a cow's ear into a silk purse. So, or 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 a lump of dung and i'm like well so you're basically saying this is crap and it should be silk but you know i'm only putting in a few grand at a time why it's just i have to wonder why not set up your own llc if you want to set up some community enterprise and just do it and then run it at cost and you maybe you're paying taxes right but then you get the tax exemption because it's at cost and therefore a non-profit and i guess this is what you just usually find a nonprofit to provide the nonprofit status basically you go you get, you have your program ready you go to the the org that can host it as a program but it's like it's its own thing it should be its own thing you know unless it's like a mondragon sec, uh, cooperative with sections you know it, it should everything can, should be its own project and then these projects can maybe coalesce into something bigger but it's it's always like artsy people trying to run a business or business people trying to do art stuff. And it's like, oh, we just need them to come together and then the arts can get funded and the and the businesses can be uh, have murals. It's just it's, it all feels like a big sham, especially when it just collapses, it falls flat or it's done and it does continue. But it's a shadow of what it should be and it doesn't get any better. The alternative, folks, is starting co-ops. The alternative is starting real community enterprises with real community people uh, and to teach ourselves how to do things. You know, the, the self-independence, you know, self-sufficiency kind of thing. Become professionals, become experts, or we, we take on the duties. We learn a bit at a time and we learn together. You know, you, you do a few years worth of tr self trainings before you start your project, and don't try to do two things at once or three things, thirty percent or thirty things ten percent. That's what I see all the time, because starting a nonprofit, even one community project, is made up of many parts, and if you don't get enough buy-in, 
there's a there's a there's a faulty logic and volunteerism I find that unless it's to build an economic base that can pay or provide the basics, then forget about it. Then you always have to chase dollars up the economic food chain till you're knocking on the Gates Foundation's door, begging hat in hand, oh, please, Mr. Bezos, Mr. Musk, will you help us out, feed the children? Well, I'm a socialist, folks. Either we fight for a government that treats these things as public goods, these you know, whether it be art centers or grocery stores, basic ser- goods and services, public provisioning, that is, that's my program, that's my platform, and that's what's eating me up inside and why I'm leaving this, this community project for the project of party building. I've got a lot of, of, it's a hard ask to build confidence in political party as vehicle of change, but I need to ask everyone, you know, you ask questions in building uh, relationships, what do you think has worked? What do you think ha- what have been, has been done and how has it been working out? You know, social movements, hashtag movements, community enterprise, nonprofit community projects. I don't see it working, right? You can point to small successes and that motivates us for the next day. But I also see unfulfilled potential and the structural issues continuing unabated, if not intensifying. How does this mode of business stop, prevent, or mitigate gentrification? It doesn't. It intensifies gentrification. The community projects make it more desirable for private investment. That's what it's about. Public investment only comes at the cost of producing private investment, and private investment means private profit-making, which means higher rents, higher costs, and you're out of here. So that's this week's program. I'm Dan Platt. Please contact me and leave feedback, suggest topics, or join me on the program. More in particular, contact me to help me build a political project for doing something about all of this that doesn't, that learns from what goes wrong and looking at what's doing okay. Like Cooperative Jackson. I think that's a good model. Show the support for this program, even if it ends. I still think people should listen to it. I'm going to promote the hell of it. Show the, spread the word. Write a review. It does make an impact. Spread on social media. I'm a small operation. Every share has an impact. Uh, on Insta, Facebook, Instagram, and Mastodon, three left show or what's left in Albany, usually both. My email can be is three lefts show at gmail. Support with dollars at Patreon or LibrePay. Search for the show name and you'll find it there. Also search the show name to find me on podcasts or music apps like iTunes, Spotify, and the like. Find the full archive and info at www.3lefts.news. The Three Left Show is my prior program where I discuss the leftist theory, strategies, and practice for a better politics and system change. Last, um, I want to wish all well and encourage all listening to devote some time every week to a collective or community project as we discover what is actually left in Albany. Some people might-
say that I should strike for more But I'm so happy I can see that something's happening here today A show of strength with your boys brigade I'm so happy and you're so kind You want more money, of course I don't mind To buy nuclear tanks was for atomic crimes And the public gets what the public wants But I want nothing to say it's a gun I'm a t- 